0: Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do week by week, to be here with us in this place right now. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Oh, Amen. Please be seated. When Ray Stance, Egon Spengler, Winston Zeddemore and Peter Venkman looked over the precipice of the Shandor building at 550 Central Park West in New York City, they saw something that terrified them. It was the mascot for the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Company. The Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, but grown to 115 feet tall, stomping down Broadway, crushing cars, and causing widespread devastation. They couldn't believe their eyes. At the climax of the movie Ghostbusters, the evil god Zul allows our four heroes to choose the method of their own destruction. Whatever they imagine will appear and destroy them. So, all the Ghostbusters clear their minds completely, except for Ray. As Ray says later, he tried to think of something that was completely safe. I tried to think, he explains, of the most harmless thing. Something I loved from my childhood. Something that could never, ever possibly destroy us. Mr. Stay Puft. But of course, this thing that he thought was completely harmless actually turned into a towering behemoth of death and destruction. And that, in a manner of speaking, is exactly what's going on in our reading this morning from Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 8, the people of Israel have gathered together and they've asked Ezra, To bring the book of the law and to read it to them. We'll begin in verse 1. This is Nehemiah 8, verse 1. All the people of Israel gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So Ezra brings the book of the law and reads it to them all morning long. The scripture says, from early morning to midday. Now, these are good church people, aren't they? They are so churchy, so invested in hearing from their God that they actually ask to have church all morning. None of this hour and 15 minute stuff. And it sounds like good church too, doesn't it? Because they have people there to interpret the reading in such a way that everyone understands it. So all's well, church is going just how you would want it to. But then something interesting happens. After this whole morning-long church service spent reading the book of the law and worshiping God, Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites realize something. The entire congregation has broken down in tears. Nehemiah says that all the people wept when they heard the words, of the law. Something quite unexpected, at least to our modern ears, has happened here, and you can follow it in a little three-step progression. One, the people ask for and hear the law. Two, the people actually understand the law. And three, the people are broken by the law. And this morning, I want to look briefly at those Three steps before announcing a fourth step, the good news that this law has been born by your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, first, the people ask for and hear the law. We should learn something from this. This is behavior to be emulated. The law is good, holy, right, and true. It is the very reflection of the lawgiver, God Almighty. It is the first way that he speaks to us, and we should rightly want to hear God's voice. It does us good to know God's plan for the world and for us and to strive to live according to that plan. But we don't expect, do we, to end up in tears. See, what happens is there's often a disconnect, a problem in the motivation we have when we ask for God's law. This problem, as a good friend put it to me recently, this problem arises when we undersee the level of bondage and sin that we bring to the equation. We don't adequately account for our own sinfulness. We imagine, sometimes only subconsciously, That the law will simply give us the opportunities we need to show our competence, to reveal how well we can do, to help us get to where we want to go. We think the law will be useful to us, a means to an end. At our best, we think that the law will show us how and then help us to be obedient to God. At our worst... We think that the law will enable us, by our obedience, to distinguish ourselves from God's other, less outstanding children. In either case, though, we think that the law will be tame. The reformer Martin Luther famously compared the law to a cat. We imagine he suggested that it's a house cat, Something we can play with and train. Something that ultimately is under our control. But, he cautioned, we are mistaken. And once we let the law out of its cage, we realize that it is a lion. And it will devour us. To use a much more modern illustration, and one that I like to think Luther would have used if he was alive in 1984, we think that the law will be the stay-puffed marshmallow man from Ray Stance's childhood. Something lovable and cute that could never, ever destroy us. But we've made a mistake. We haven't understood the law in all its glory. And the law, the law of God, let out of its cage, will destroy New York and us along with it. God's law is not a means to an end. God's law is the end of us. In this all-day worship service presided over by Ezra and Nehemiah, the church leadership makes sure that the congregation understands the law. So they read from the book we read, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense. So that the people understood the reading. This is the second step. Actually understanding the law of God that is all too often underestimated, softened, or skipped over altogether. Because, you know, it's not the most fun part of church, is it? Part of my job, as it turns out, and the job of the leaders of this congregation, according to the Bible and to God himself, is to remind you just how holy the law is and how far it reaches in order that you might be reminded or come to know for the first time just how depraved a sinner you are. Fun, right? We've got membership covenants at the back. (laughs) Luther, still talking about how we chronically underestimate the law, called it, quote, the hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and the lightning bolt of divine wrath. Therefore, he said, the law is a hammer that smashes rocks. It is the fire, the wind, and the earthquake, great and strong, that overturns mountains. And finally, he has a warning for us. And I suppose for me in particular, I appeal to you who are going to be teachers of others to diligently learn this topic about the true and proper use of the law. For after our time, it will again be obscured and hidden. This is where our underseeing comes in. In our time, The law of God is indeed again obscured and hidden. The world tells us incessantly that we're doing fine. That we're wonderful just the way we are or just the way we want to be. That we can and should decide right from wrong for ourselves. That our hearts are trustworthy and will lead us into happiness and goodness. That we can adequately function as our own gods. Giving creation meaning and purpose as we see fit. But these lies cannot bear up to God's word. What Luther warns against, the attempt to hide and obscure God's law, what Luther warns against, Jesus won't allow. For his entire ministry, Jesus preached the law to its full height. There is a God, and you are not him. He is holy, and you are not. He decides what is right and wrong, and your call is to conform to him. He is utterly beyond your reach. To get to God, Jesus' ministry shouts, you must be perfect in all the ways that he is perfect, perfectly loving perfectly forgiving, perfectly pure, perfectly righteous. You have heard that it was said to those of old, our Lord preached in Matthew chapter 5, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's the law of God preached to its fullest, and Jesus is not nearly done. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Be perfect. Jesus preaches as your father in heaven is perfect. And the proof that we don't fully understand the law of God and that we chronically undersee our own sin is that I just read those commandments of the Lord out loud and not one of us is weeping. Now, I know that's not fair. We're Christians. When the congregation gathered at the Watergate, heard the law of God announced and interpreted, they broke down. The third step in our three step progression, they heard the law, they understood the law, and they were broken by the law. They broke down, though, because they did not have an answer. We're not weeping. But it's not because we don't know the depth of our sin, although we can certainly stand to be reminded. We're not weeping because we know the fourth step. We know that we've been given good news. We know that Jesus, after announcing that crushing law, was himself crushed by it, giving us his law-keeping in exchange for our sin and proclaiming it is finished, reconciling us to God forever. And actually, this good news is foreshadowed even in this church service at the Watergate 500 years before Jesus is born. That assembly actually had some good news proclaimed to them. Ezra and Nehemiah, faced with this congregation of people, the entire nation of Israel, lying on their faces, covered in tears, crushed by the weight of the law, have a counterintuitive announcement Go your way, they say, eat the fat, drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Go, they say, stand up, have a party, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, celebrate. And why is it that these people should celebrate? Because God, they are promised, will be their strength. God himself will bear them up even in this time when they feel so weak, so broken. Yes, they are sinners. But they have a God who will redeem them. The same God who has given the law, has also promised to be the people's strength. The same God who has crushed them will raise them up. And this has always been the way that God has dealt with his people. The same God that allowed them to be enslaved in Egypt went so far as to split a sea to rescue them. And this redemption work of a holy God finds its pinnacle, its culmination, in Jesus Christ. God the lawgiver is also God the Son, our savior Jesus Christ the law keeper. And he appears on the scene at just the right time. In Romans we read that at just the right time, when while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, Christ comes for us, while we were like the Israelites, oppressed by the law, on our faces under the weight of our own failures, covered in tears and broken, right then Christ comes. This is Jesus' announcement in our reading from Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he announced as he began his public ministry, because he has anointed me to bring good news. To the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Stand up. He might as well be saying, wipe away those tears and let's have a party. This is the year of the Lord's favor. I am here. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we preach, the announcement that prompts us to eat and drink and have a party is that though the law comes and destroys us, it is also the mechanism by which we recognize our desperation. It shows us our sin and reveals our need for a savior. So when the law comes and destroys, the son of God comes and resurrects. Our death is overturned by Christ's death. Our life is created anew by Christ's life. We hear the law and understand it and are brought to tears. We hear the gospel and believe it and are moved to joy in Christ. We were poor, but are now rich. We were captive and are now released. We were blind, but can now see we were oppressed, but are now free. The year of the Lord's favor. The coming of Jesus Christ stops all the weeping in him. Every tear is wiped away from every eye. In him, we rejoice. We party. We've got it all set up right here. Come and celebrate with us. Eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ broken and shed for you. He is alive. And in him, so are you. Jesus Christ is the Savior for whom the law showed you your need. Jesus Christ is the Savior that the gospel announces to you. In Christ, this, right now, right here for you, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Celebrate what he has done for you. Amen.